This episode of Grow, Grow, Grow is sponsored by Ad Astra, who is the trusted partner of 500 colleges and universities committed to graduating more students faster. Through data-informed planning and course scheduling, Ad Astra empowers institutions to efficiently remove barriers to completion while also ensuring financial sustainability. Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much for joining our podcast, Grow, Grow, Grow. Uh, today, I have two guests with me, and uh, we're going to talk about a different kind of growth. You know, we often focus on big picture things with growth and big investments, things like adding sports teams or building a building or, uh, you know, adding an academic program. Uh, it turns out that there are more ways to grow than that. And today we'll talk about some things that I would consider more kind of block and tackling, things you might not expect would lead to growth, but it turns out they do. So without further ado, let me let my guests introduce themselves. Uh, today we have Sarah Collins from Ad Astra and David Short from Lamar College. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Um, my name is Sarah Collins. I am uh, the president at Ad Astra. Um, have actually been with Ad Astra for 25 years um, and have uh, been navigating uh, kind of the the enrollment um, di dynamic and um, uh, climate um, over up and down over those 25 years within higher education. Um, and uh, I'm glad to be here to talk about some uh, some kind of uh, lesser thought about ways to uh, to trigger growth, especially in, in times of down enrollment within um, higher education. David? I'm David Short. I'm the registrar at Lamar University. Um, I've been in higher ed, honestly, I've been around higher ed my whole life. My father was a faculty member, so I kind of grew up around campus, but I've been working in higher ed for the last 23 years. And same, we've, I've seen a little bit of everything and every approach you know, through multiple administrations now. Great. So without further ado, um, Sarah, uh, you, you know, obviously you guys do scheduling. How could scheduling actually lead to growth? I understand how it could give you efficiencies, but how do you get growth out of it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and and we're starting to see more and more growth because our data is becoming more targeted, more disaggregated, and we can be a lot more strategic um, and focused about where we resource um, certain programs, how we resource certain programs, and just thinking about how to target other demographics of students to get them back either back into the institution or um, taking more credits within the institution. So surprisingly, like you said, efficiency has always been tightly coupled with scheduling. People think about that and better space utilization, uh, better faculty to student ratio, um, uh, 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 utilization for lack of a better word. Um, but what they don't think about is the revenue that you can yield from very targeted strategic um, scheduling of courses so that classes are offered in the modalities at the times of day within the right programs that students really want but can't get with this kind of um, decentralized, very macro approach to scheduling. So it's really about getting the right data and then targeting that uh, information towards strategic scheduling. So in effect, what you're trying to do is offer the right class at the right time that will attract students. That's exactly right. And in David's story, actually, um, I think he can tell you that it's it's a little bit of that, but then there's also... Um, you know, you have to you have to continue to watch enrollment as as registration is happening. 
Yeah, I would agree on that. Um, to talk about a sports analogy used earlier in home runs, we're playing a lot of small ball right now. It's it's definitely throwing out different initiatives, but you know, particularly what I think caught some people's attention here was that you know minor adjustments, minor adjustments, and watching enrollment during the enrollment period, seeing where the need was, and making adjustments on the fly as registration happened. And that led to a lot more registrations than we would have had if we hadn't been making these adjustments. Tell me more, what kinds of things did you change? So we, using Ad Astra software, we were monitoring enrollment as it, you know, as enrollment happened. And just my approach was to find those high demand courses, again, using the data that was provided. And as they started filling, just looking for a simple, okay, this course is capped at 35, can I raise it to 38 and keep it in the classroom? Or can we move it to a larger classroom of 50, 75? You know, the need's there, the course is full. Can we make a minor adjustment and get more students in there? You know, I understand you get more students in there, but you know, presumably those students would have just taken a different course if they couldn't get that course. How do you actually get an increase in, in revenue out of that? Well, first, let me address the first part, you know, just taking another course isn't necessarily productive. We like, you know, mm -hmm. the, the concept of productive credits. If that class doesn't actually get them closer to their degree, it could actually hurt them more than help them. You know, that, that's taking a class and spending money or using up more of your aid on something that in the end is just excess hours versus taking a course that's on your degree plan that's going to get you three or four hours closer to degree completion, which is what we really want to do to save our students money, save our students time. And I would say, Bob, too, at the macro level, um, you know, Ad Astor works with well over 500 colleges and universities. Um, when the data is targeted, we, we do actually see students taking more credits, and that's where the tuition yield comes from. So the fact that they may stop at 12, because that's what they have to take, productive or not productive because of financial aid, they might take 15 when the right mix of classes are offered that allow them to progress um, closer to, um, to their endpoint. Um, and we certainly see that in part-time students in spades, where you know they may be coming and uh, one semester they may only take six. But if you offer the right mix of classes and in a way that they're not having to have huge gaps in their schedule, in a way that they could only come in the evenings and not have to fraction their semester, we could get them up to nine credits from six. And that is that's real dollars um, to the university. What other impact does that have? You've, you've moved that revenue forward, right? In a sense, it would have been. Um... Is that does that lead to greater net revenue, or you just have a bigger cliff two years from now? I think the hope is greater net revenue. We're, we're a couple of years out from this change, so we haven't fallen off the cliff yet. <laughs> but we continue. No, I mean, I think what impact does it have on graduation rates? Again, what we're hoping is by getting them in fifteen hours versus twelve, you're reducing that time to degree. So it, it may be a semester sooner, it may be a year sooner, depending on how aggressive we are and how, how well this, the schedule meets the students' needs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so please go ahead. No, no, I should say, here's, a, here's another interesting twist on it. And David has a, has a component uh, or a story about this too. Think about how you're funded as, an, as a state institution or as a public institution, or maybe even as a private, but performance funding is shifting in higher education and depends on your state, right? So 
there are opportunities to not only have short-term uh, to uh, increase in tuition yield, but longer-term um, financial support from the state from performance-funded metrics. So as we're shifting from uh, just being funded on enrollment to being funded on progress, being funded on completion, uh, and being funded on efficiencies, which they are in Texas very much so, you're also impacting the, the state funding that comes in on top of the tuition funding. Interesting. So you're actually getting more revenue per student, in effect. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that's always shocked me is um, since much of tuition is charged on an annual or semester basis, um, that students have this impression that if they come in and take um, 12 credits instead of 15, that they're progressing at a normal pace. Um, but they aren't. And they're going to end up having to pay tuition for five or six years. Um, to take effectively the same number of courses. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any choice when I went to college. I had to take a certain number of credits and, you know, sort of, but uh, the financial aid world has sort of turned that on its head and people think meeting a financial aid requirement, I think they think it'll get them through the college in four years and it doesn't. Um, so they essentially they pay six years worth of tuition to get four years worth of education. Um, and I really think that's one of the uh, nasty little hidden problems in higher ed. I can say we've been really aggressive with what we call 15 to finish. I'm sure we're not unique there, but our freshman advising center really pushes our students to take minimum 15 hours a semester. But part of that, you know, on top of everything else is they use the, the data of missed revenue. If it takes you six years to graduate versus four, that's two years of, you know, of a job and of income you're missing versus mm -hmm. spending on classes. So it, it, there's a lot of small things like that that come into play that students may not immediately think about, but we try to make sure they're aware of. Can you give me sort of specific examples of a course you might have fiddled with and what the impact was in terms of number of students and revenue? Right. Without naming names on departments, you know, we, we have several courses, particularly lab sciences that are core curriculum courses, gen ed, and we have some that are much more popular than others. You know, in that course, we have some that fill up day one of registration. Mm -hmm. So if we just left that alone, well, students may not necessarily go take the harder physics or, or you know, microbiology that they don't really want. They'll just go to another school. We have three junior colleges within, you know, a 10 minute drive from our campus. So we run the risk of just losing them outright, either for that one class or for the entire semester. Mm. How much of that do you see actually in practice? You know, what I can say is what we see is when we increase the courses, the students fill them up. So, but it is very common for our students to, whether it's for a single course or for a semester, to jump over to another one of the junior colleges in the area to take the take that semester. Right. I've, I've heard of this, too. And, and, you know, in particular courses, especially, they might take it over the summer as well. Right. Um, mm -hmm. They can't get it with you guys. And, it, you know, they might. It might be cheaper, it might be more available, but um, you've lost the credit. Yeah, exactly right. Bob, I'd love to jump back to what you said about kind of the financial aid world turning this kind of upside down because um, we at Ad Astra completely agree. And as a matter of fact, we've decided to jump into about a hundred institutions worth of data and look at specifically credit hour accumulation. Um, as as David mentioned, we, we look not just at total credit hour accumulation, but productive 
to the actual degree uh, because we see a lot of unproductive credit hour accumulation. These, these two things together, this idea of advising for 12 hours and having to take at least 12 hours to get your financial aid creates a lot of waste of money for those particular students and of time. And as David says, like Lamar, the 15 to finish, making that very aware, really talking about the opportunity cost of lost wages, the more time you spend in college versus out in the workforce, et cetera, and educating the student is super important. But the other thing that we're unpacking actually in a research report, which I'd be happy to share with, um, uh, with, with your audiences as well later this year is, not just thinking about part-time versus full-time, but there's a lot of kind of subsets of that where we started looking at retention and the correlation between credit hour, um, credit hour accumulation and graduation in smaller chunks. So like in, um, in, in three to six hour bands versus as under 12 hours or over 12 hours, part-time versus full-time. And it is amazing, but if a student is taking, instead of taking six credit hours a semester, they jump up to nine credit hours a semester, their correlation, um, their likelihood to graduate exponentially jumps up um, because of that extra credit hour. And the, the university is benefiting. Um, I, I want to say it is around a 20%, um, but I will have, uh, I'll have some data on that um, for you uh, in November. Great. Great. Seems like a good time to talk about momentum year as well. But that's yeah. other data that we're getting from you, which is just the, the idea that not only do you want them in 15 hours, but you want to knock out your English, you want to knock out your math, you want to knock out, you know, was it 15 hours of credit toward a degree in the first year? And those students that do that, actually are more successful, they retain better. And we can use this Momumier metrics that we're getting from Master to find the students who aren't doing that and do some targeted recruitment to them. Um, we've used money in the past to go, hey, you know, we've got some extra money. You didn't finish your, your 30 hours toward degree this summer. Can we get you in an English this summer just to get you through that moment, momentum year? Interesting. So you're actually using your financial aid in a very targeted way yeah. to accelerate their uh, path. Well, it, if the student stays another year, another three years, that's more income for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this the ability to spend financial aid in smaller increments when it will have an impact, I think, is very, very smart. I mean, and you see these terrible things happen at the end when they're three hundred dollars short um, and they drop out in their last semester of their senior year, and it's like, for heaven's sake, give them the three hundred bucks and let them graduate, right? We've started uh, doing that as well. Any other, uh, so I hear acceleration, um, an impact on retention rates, an impact on graduation rates. Um, any sense of how much incremental revenue you're getting? Have you, uh, you know, what, what's the growth been like at Lamar? Growth has been slow, but steady. Um, just the fact that we, we remain up each semester is I think a win for us compared to a lot of schools in the same situation. We stayed positive through most of COVID. Um, so I can just show you just one snapshot I did a couple of semesters back with this incremental growth on registration monitoring, just a simple calculation, not factoring in all, all costs, but over 500,000 in revenue just for adding seats to sections. Yeah, that's a lot of money in this day and age. Um, how, in how big, what's your, roughly what's your total revenue? I can answer that for you. 
um, just I'd be curious to know sort of percentage of total. Um, I'll see but, if I can get that for you. Yeah. Um, so uh, interesting. That's not and and basically with you're not really talking about any incremental cost, right? Right. Like most of this was just adding seats to existing sections, so we're not having to hire additional faculty. We're right. just using faculty we already have the space we already have, just using it better. Right. Now that leads me to a question: How did your faculty feel about this? I heard nothing. Hey, we we have courses that are hard capped because they are reading intensive or you know a lot of speeches and those courses we didn't mess with. Mm -hmm. But you know courses that weren't you know kind of hard capped. Again, I heard no complaints from faculty. And, and again, what you see is that you we always have that growth up to the point of school starting, and then you have that non-payment purge and lose students. Adding extra just meant that particularly those kind of small courses it increases their chances of making. And so the faculty actually better chance of keeping their full schedule. No, well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, in a sense that the attrition might bring you right back under your normal cap. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, we have seen Bob where, where we've seen institutions that have been able to identify enough pent up demand in 100, 200 level courses that it has funded new faculty lines versus cutting programs. It was just a matter of the fact that um, you know, they just didn't have enough of that, that faculty to support the, um, you know, a lot of the gen ed classes and the 100 and 200 level and, um, and having the data um, that, that targeted that uh, brought in the revenue that could fund the faculty needed to support it. Yeah. Um, it, it, I find all this, you know, kind of fascinating. You'd think this would be uh, uh, oversubscribed 100 and 200 level courses would be widely known. Um, but I'm not sure what happens uh, as a registrar when you have an oversubscribed course. What happens to that information? What do you call an oversubscribed? Uh, let's assume, let's take a soft cap course. Before mm -hmm. you started making the adjustments in real time, uh, you're over by, you had five students who wanted to take it who couldn't. Um, what happened to the information? You know, you had, had five un unfilled uh, opportunities to the students to study. I would say that wasn't measured at all on our campus. Um, I think there were departments that were hand keeping lists, but we weren't using wait lists at the time. We just started that this last semester. We, we weren't measuring through Astro. So that was just unknown potential and untapped potential. Interesting. And how many, how many students go to register and decide not to wait list a class or right. wait list everything. Right. So there's, there's tricky, it's tricky data even when you do try to um, use wait list data. Um, and there's, you know, there's kind of a cycle. There's, there's that forecasting component. Uh, right. And then there's the monitoring during registration, which, you know, is, is better than just relying on waitlist data because you can actually see hits and you can, you can say, okay, we're getting to 98% full. What if we upped it by three seats? Um, and then you go and you get those three more incremental seats. So just kind of getting, keeping barely ahead of that. Now, um, let me take us out into a more theory. So uh, let me summarize that a little bit. Um, so first, it, I, I would guess many institutions are in the same situation you used to be in, where uh, courses would oversubscribe, but in effect, they would, they would by the next year, they would have forgotten. Um, and so there'd be no adjustment to the capacity because there's really no record that there were five students um, who tried to get in who couldn't. Um, if there was, it was, you know, on some professor's, a notepad somewhere. Um, so that's really, I find that fascinating. And in effect, we're not taking advantage of the market opportunity that we have 
you know, right within the four walls already. Um, and, you know, the amount of money you spend to attract a student, to keep a student, to not, you know, uh, let them take the courses they want in effect and, and pay the tuition they're trying to pay for those courses really seems like a shame and a lot of, of money lost, if you will. Um, so uh, the second thought, though, I have is uh, one of my visions for all this is that there, there are two levels of uncertainty about how many students are going to show up. One is the students have already been on your campus and you have some notion about what they're majoring in and, you know, how a given person, given their major is likely to, what courses are likely to take next. The other part is um, the students who may be coming to your institution and you've got to estimate what's going to happen with them. Um, I think, I think that's outside of the scheduling world, if I'm not mistaken. Um, somebody's got to give you that estimate. Um, you know, I, it's one of these areas I think Greg can work in where we're pretty good at estimating things like that. Um, we don't know much about estimating what's going to happen once they're there. Mm -hmm. um, we can see that first touch, right? Um, mm -hmm. But after that, it, it really flows into what, what you can do with scheduling. Do you have, how do you go about making that first estimate for your incoming class at whatever level? Um, is, is there a formal system or is it, you know, putting your thumb up in the air and trying to guess? Yeah. Well, let, uh, let me start with what Ad, Ad Astra does, and then let, let, let's talk about what Lamar does specifically. So um, the algorithm that Ad Astra has actually does look at historical trends of new enrollment, and it looks at the distribution of programs of study that those um, that those students have come into. Um, same with the transfer students that are going to come in at junior year, senior year, or second semester of, of freshman year. And so we give the, uh, institutions a baseline to play with, and then they can work with enrollment management or they can work with an external firm like like Gray and and refine those based on kind of external forecasts um, versus what we know. And then I'll let Lamar, I'll let David talk about how Lamar does that. But um, I do want to go back to those external forecasts and the connection to internal demand forecasting um, after David talks about how how he does that for like incoming freshmen. Okay. Well, I think you basically said it. We take your data as the baseline, and then we work with IRR to see if they have any major adjustments to make. But it's a com combination of our internal research and what you're providing for us. Mm -hmm. What do you have on, how do you estimate the, just the total number of students who are going to show up? It's mostly historical trends. Historical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so where where that's off, obviously, is kind of the work that I think this is this is where Gray and Ad Astra kept coupled together, the data points coupled together make um, make this a real powerhouse solution is that um, external demand might be changing. And we may not know, Ad Astra certainly doesn't know what that external demand is like. And an institution doesn't either li likely unless they have um, access that data from a, a third party some way or another. Right. Um, but I think that what's interesting is, is, is pairing that up with then the forecasting for what your capacity is going to need to be in the course schedule is, is exactly. very powerful. I think the other really powerful thing that I'm starting to see is, is two fronts. One, it's on the marketing front. So if you know, and you're seeing an increase in, um, in external demand for a certain program of study, 
I believe, and some of our clients believe that the course schedule is actually a great marketing tool, especially if you're dealing with a non-traditional student population. If you're dealing with working adults um, or um, another population, if you can say, we are going to run this program in the evenings consistently for this amount of time and use that as a marketing tool, that can be a great recruitment asset. Um, second is the re-enrollment population. So really understanding what who, who it is that you have at your institution that's stopped out, what programs they've stopped out in, if there is capacity in those programs, and if there is additional external demand in those programs that you could get enough students in the door to kind of um, uh, really support that program of study. Very interesting. Um, I think there's an opportunity potentially to... Well, there's a whole other cut to this too. I, now I think about it. Um, you have capped programs, I'm sure. You know, nursing is a great example of this generally. Um, do you ever sit there with empty seats in those? Because, uh, you know, you could fill those in a heartbeat, I would think, if you if you knew they were going to be empty in enough time. I say they fill their class every semester, but empty would be you have someone who fails out. So. Yes and no, primarily no. They do a good job keeping the, the program full, but there right. is loss. Yeah, there's usually a wait list for those programs. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for all of us who might need a nurse someday. Um, so, uh, but that's a topic for another day. Um, so we've got, I, I, let me ask a, a, a very different kind of question. Um, everybody's talking about AI these days. Um, what do you see the is there a potential role for AI in this whole process? Um, anything you're doing with it now? Well, that's a great question. Uh, basically, I would say right now it's a discovery process. We're in a research phase of what we could be doing with it. Now, our algorithms are certainly getting um, more and more sophisticated in trying to predict what a student is going to do versus just what the curriculum is telling them to do. So historically, it's all been really curriculum based, like this is what the student should do. This is what's best for the student. And now we're starting to kind of combine that um, these are the patterns we've seen historically. This is likely what they are going to do and put those kind of, um, you know, per more better predictive of the behaviors um, right. that we're seeing during registration. But we are certainly on the forefront of researching true AI uh, and how the algorithm can can make itself better and better and better and smarter and smarter and smarter. Well, and optimize schedules and things yes. uh, would be, I mean, that's a yeah. natural AI thing. Just by yeah. the way, um, that's also a key part of, um, I always call it optical computing. It's not. Um, the next quantum computing um, mm -hmm. is uh, optimization is what it's good at. Um, yes. So as soon as you can get yourself a, your, your hands on a $10 billion optical uh, quantum computer, you know, you can run those algorithms. Perfect. <laughs> by the way, you have to code them in machine language too. Um, so, you know, zero that's somebody, but that's somebody way, way above my, uh, my skill level and pay grade, I believe. <laughs> yeah. I think there'll be oil field services and places like that. I think is where, and, uh, it's probably where that'll get done where yeah. there's billions of dollars at stake, but, uh, Lamar, anything, is there anything going on at Lamar that, um, would, where, where AI is going to kick in? Um, not campus wide yet, for sure. I, I'm sure it's within the departments, within institutional research, but nothing campus-wide yet, no. And not in um, scheduling at this point, not in the registrar's office. Correct. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I, this is a, a different topic, but I think we're going to find it. AI is like electricity. It'll be everywhere. Um, right. it, you won't be thinking of it as AI. I mean, you, and and right. we don't. I don't think there are people who think electricity is interesting per se. Most of us just want to use it, right? We don't really care about it. Um, and so I think there are going to be uh, things like schedule optimization, um, all kinds of analysis that could be done to try and predict what a student will do, to your point. Um, and then just dozens and dozens of other applications on campus. Um, I think one of the things we'll be trying to do an interesting intersection here too, is if you look out at the employment world and you think about what skills employers want, um, coming back in through the registrar's office to say, okay, I need to tell a student, you know, that this is what they need to learn uh, because they've expressed an interest in that career or because they're in a program that naturally leads to that career. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that that can go on and all of work on, it turns out that labor market data fundamentally is analyzed using AI, um, not necessarily the most cutting edge uh, AI, but you know you couldn't do that work without machine language, without machine learning models and language models. Um, I don't think that's, do you take into account labor markets when you're working on these schedules um, or designing, a, you know, figuring out what courses to offer? On my end, no. Um, I know that we have to do market research before you start a new program. I, that helps guide what courses are going to be required. But as far as the scheduling side, no. So anything else uh, that you guys are doing that helps to drive growth? I'd say, you know, another scheduling rate is just decompressing the schedule, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, over time, what we find is more and more and more and more you know, 9.30 and 11.30, Tuesday, Thursday is the most popular time to teach a class. So uh, you got to the point where we ran out of classrooms just during that one time period because that's when everyone, so when when everyone's teaching the same classes at the same time, students, again, can't take a full schedule because they can't take everything Tuesday, Thursday, 9.30. So starting to spread that schedule back out from 8 a.m. to 5, 6, 7 o'clock at night so those morning students can take morning classes, evening students can take evening, and day can take day. Um, that helps fill that schedule, and, and then your credit hours goes up there as well. So that's been a good move for us. Yeah, that I mean, I've always heard that. Uh, you know, why did you schedule me to teach this course between you know eight and nine? Um, right. Not very popular. Uh, I even heard one provost say they used it as a form of discipline. You know. Um, if you, if you don't get your stuff done or whatever, then you're going to get the eight o'clock slot next semester. And, and that's unfortunate. You know, talking to faculty, I know like one says, I love teaching at 8 a.m. because the students who are in that class want to be in that class. Mm -hmm. And they're a much better group of students to teach than, you know, the 930 group. So, yeah. Well, I remember my only 8 a.m. class was not a hit for me. I'm not, I don't function at that hour or I, I didn't then. I still don't really, but um so uh, other ideas that you've run across, Sarah? Um, no, I mean, I think, I think in general, I think there's a lot of opportunity for long-term capacity planning um, from, from the course schedule and from um, uh, thinking out multi-year. So I see a very big trend in multi-year planning and integrated planning. So really where we're headed is how do we integrate enrollment planning 
academic planning from uh, from a scheduling like operational planning and faculty hiring planning um, and 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 even longer term um, you know support of what we do rolling up to program um, uh, ongoing program evaluations and reviews. Um, so that's that's really where where we're headed is how do we integrate all those things to have a, a one picture of this versus doing that in silos across the university and also thinking about it longer term. Of course, scheduling has historically been something done term by term by term as kind of a last minute thing. And it feels like an administrative task to everybody who has to do it. And it just has to get done so we can open registration. And we're seeing a big trend in that changing where people are starting to think about planning a year or two in advance. And Lamar is a great example of that. They they will refine the schedule term by term, but they'll have that schedule out there for, David, what is it, one to eight, one to two years? We have out to summer 25 built at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's awesome because they know and students know and they can kind of start to they'll have to refine it because a lot of variables change in that time frame. But having that skeleton out there makes people think about it differently. And um, and as I said, you know, the, the longer out you can go, the better off you are for thinking about, um, again, hiring needs, um, you know, growing programs um, where you're gonna see um, additional capacity needed and um, and marketing those programs. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're doing this uh, if I understood correctly, but when I think about that long-term, I think about an individual student um, who maybe is a working mother and, you know, they work from four to seven at night or four to seven in the morning. They can't go to class when they're working. so. Right. Uh, those having those blocks where I can complete my curriculum um, within the block that I can of time when I can attend school um, and knowing that not having it suddenly, you know, it changes next semester and suddenly I can't make progress. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we call those completion paths and it's looking at are we offering and, and Lamar has been looking at their completion paths. Are we offering if we go sell a program to that mother? and say, hey, we will get you in and these classes are at night. And we do that for the first semester. Maybe we follow through the second, but are we following through in the actual rollout of that curriculum in the third semester, fourth semester, fifth semester? Yeah. Typically it starts to break down and then you lose that mother because she can't, she can't have, her life doesn't work with that schedule. So it's right. really having that clear path all the way to the completion. Well, and I think, uh, what is it, Deming used to call it constancy of purpose. Um, you know, you're going to actually stick with that for eight semesters because, oh, by the way, that's, well, how many she needs to graduate? Um, so uh, that's right. Maybe, and typically for that kind of person, longer because they're not at school full time. That's so, right. It's a real commitment to the individuals, um, to the segment of students, I guess, uh, that's expressed in a schedule. Let me touch on something else. You mentioned just in passing a second ago, talking about hiring needs, um, an antidote that we're kind of starting to deal with now, take generic freshman entry-level course and looking at all of our degree plans where every program says, take this your first semester. So this department struggles with, okay, well in the fall, we have to offer 50, 50 sections and I have to hire 20 adjuncts to get this done. And then the spring I have to fire everybody because I don't need them. So the idea of finally spreading that out, you know, like I said, not just thinking about the next semester, but thinking about the full year or the full yeah. three, 
three, four. And you have to take it within your first year. It's a very different right. instruction. Right. So if we go, okay, well, let's take half of them, half of our degree plans and put them there first semester. The other half put them second semester. You can kind of spread that balance out versus putting everybody in semester one. And then you have this huge discrepancy between offered courses between you know, fall and spring. Well, and it must drive changes in quality of instruction as well. You know, when you have faculty coming and going like that, you're not going to get consistency. In, right. In so interesting. Um, so let's uh, put scheduling aside for a moment, unless there are other ideas about how to grow that we haven't touched on. What else are you seeing out there as uh, strategies schools are taking to grow? I see a lot of creative things going on out there. Um, you know, one of the... Uh, one of the the creative things I see is a lot of um, two year and four year partnerships where they're combining programs um, and um, really maximizing resources and and getting to a broader student population. And I think I think that's really positive. Um, I certainly am seeing um, a lot of targeting. I mentioned this earlier in um, targeting those students with uh, with some credit, no credential or no degree. Um, as a way to bring enrollments back. Um, but, uh, but you know, I've, I've mentioned now several times, I think using the, um, the longer term schedules as a marketing, um, uh, a marketing asset is, is a way um, to, to, to help with enrollment. Interesting. Did that spur any thoughts, David? I think we've touched on a lot of things that we're trying to do, whether that's what we call recruit back, hitting those students who've stopped out for whatever reason and trying to entice them back. It's a little bit of everything. Um, just trying to listen to your students, see what they actually want and deliver that versus just what we feel we should be doing. Right. And for all that, you need data. Yeah. Well, certainly we're seeing more of that, uh, fortunately, um, of people who actually want data to inform these decisions. Yeah. And in particular, you know, I think people have overemphasized labor market data, which is very important, but it's not the only thing. You actually need data on student demand when you're making program decisions, both internal data, you know, the kinds of things that you have in a scheduling system, as well as external data to say there's this whole program over here uh, that we're not offering, or this program could be twice as big as it is now, but it's a night weekend program. Um, right. And, you know, that kind of thing. I think there's there's a lot more room for growth out there that people really think. Um, sure. I personally believe we've just done a lousy job market in college. Um, you know, all this stuff about, oh, you're going to have a good life if you don't go to college. Well, there are careers out there where you can have a very good life and there, um, you know, a lot of people where college isn't appropriate and they're going to go their way. And, and I'm not, you know, that's fine. But if you have the capability of going to college and you don't go, it's a very expensive mistake. Yes. Um, you know, the last numbers I've seen is a million dollars in lifetime earnings that goes away. Um, yep. And, you know, that's a lot of money. Um, and certainly for the co cost of most colleges, when you, after you're done with financial aid, you know, you're looking at net debt of 25 or $30,000. If you told me I could go get a million dollars by investing 25,000, I'd probably do that deal every day <laughs> until I ran that's out right. of 25,000 bucks. And then I borrow some. That's right. um, uh, I think we got to get after that. But I think a part of it is making school more accessible. Um, and in the ways you guys have talked about it, part of it's a schedule. Right? Mm -hmm. Got to be there at the times that the students want to take the class. Um, yeah. Or, so. 
And and we just, you know, students aren't, there's, I, in my opinion, there there isn't such a thing as a traditional student anymore. That is, that's probably the minority versus the majority. And we need to think that way. Um, and we have very traditional structures and systems. And um, frankly, institutions have been rolling forward very traditional schedules. Um, and it's, that's, that's, a, it's an infrastructure barrier um, to people to retaining students and to even getting them in the door. So, um, yeah, really understanding your, your student demographic and, and scheduling to that can have a huge impact. We know it also relieves a lot of stress on uh, the other part of scheduling, which is facilities. Yes. You know, if there's, if you were a factory and you were running em empty, you know, for, half a day, right? Half a 24 hour clock or more. Um, that's not very good utilization. Yeah. And uh, there's one college that I know of that actually does measure utilization of facilities on a 24 hour clock. And um, they're teaching international students, foreign students in country, you know, somewhere else um, in the hours that, you know, you wouldn't think anybody be awake. Um, but they're really working on keeping the building uh, full as well as the uh, individual professors and things. Um, but I very much appreciate your participation. Um, fascinating topic, not one I ever would have imagined um, personally. So, uh, and yet, as you describe it, this business of aligning schedules to students um, so that we can bring the segments in that otherwise wouldn't come to campus, of uh, opening up some seats um, so that people can take that course and not uh, essentially wander off. Um, they can accelerate their progress through the school that brings in incremental revenue. Uh, and it increases your graduation rates. Uh, uh, just a lot of benefits from better managing the schedule that that I would just personally wouldn't have thought of. So very I, interesting. I think Thank you. Too, you know, from that recruitment and, and marketing perspective, you buy goodwill. Mm. So if you have students that are frustrated because they've been you know bottlenecked out of their classes semester after semester, you start addressing that and suddenly they can take the class they want. They're going to feel a little bit about better about their choice of institution, hopefully stick around a little bit longer, maybe even tell their friends. Yeah, um, I think that's right. And uh, all those folks go out and talk in the community. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that has an impact both directions. You know, if they're able to come and go to college on their schedule and they tell their friends, that's a good thing. Yeah. And vice versa. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, th thanks again. I really appreciate your time and uh, fascinating discussion. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, David. Anytime.